Welcome to the USMLE Step 2 Success Podcast. I'm Dr. Rajani Kata, author of The Successful Matchbook, and in this podcast, I share clinical cases with targeted teaching points. This podcast is not affiliated in any way with the National Board of Medical Examiners, and cases and teaching points are not meant to serve as an official study guide or medical guidance. I've been a faculty member for over 20 years, and I've advised hundreds of residency applicants. I know how important standardized test scores are in the application process, although I always remind my students that they're just one piece of the application puzzle. If you'd like to learn more on how to succeed in the residency match, you can sign up for a free 100-page excerpt of The Successful Matchbook on our website, thesuccessfulmatch.com. I want you to imagine that you're in the clinic and it's Friday afternoon at 4.30. You walk in to see the last patient of the day. And in fact, she's your last patient of the week. And I want to highlight the fact that it's Friday afternoon at 4.30 because that almost guarantees that it's going to be a very challenging patient. And in fact, it is. This patient is a 45-year-old author, and she's a new patient to you, and her chief complaint is wrist pain. As you talk to her about what might have incited it, she mentions that she had banged her arm against a cabinet, but it wasn't a very severe impact. However, ever since then, she's had pain in her wrist. As you take her vital signs, you document a blood pressure of 190 over 110, surprisingly, because she hadn't reported a history of hypertension. As you're doing your physical exam, you also note that she has extensive bruising on her arms and her legs. You also notice as you're taking the history that she seems to be a little bit confused or forgetful when she's providing details of her history. As you perform the x-ray and get the results back, you note that she does indeed have a fracture in her wrist. In addition, she has osteoporosis. So in this patient who presents with a wrist fracture, osteoporosis, hypertension, bruising, and confusion, what is the most likely diagnosis? As you're listening, I hope you noted several items here. The most likely diagnosis is Cushing syndrome. And I base this case based on a recent episode I watched of the TV show Royal Pains, which is kind of fun because they have a physician who treats all sorts of unusual cases. But Cushing syndrome, of course it would be the last patient of the day because Cushing syndrome refers to hypercortisolism. In other words, increased cortisol levels. And when you have an increase in cortisol levels that's sustained, that leads to a cluster of clinical signs and symptoms that's called Cushing syndrome. And unlike your traditional textbook patient, most patients in real life aren't going to have every symptom or sign of Cushing syndrome. So you have to be really alert for this possibility and, um, and to really pay attention to how these constellation of symptoms go together. 
Now I want to point out a few things about Cushing syndrome. First of all is that Cushing disease is a separate entity. So Cushing disease refers to a specific etiology of hypercortisolism. Specifically, Cushing disease occurs when you have increased cortisol levels due to a pituitary tumor. I also want to point out that this constellation of signs and symptoms known as Cushing syndrome may be exogenous. And the most likely cause of exogenous is due to the administration of systemic steroids. I think back to when I was early in my career as a dermatology attending, and I'm thinking of a particular patient who was 55 years old, but he looked much older than that. He was a patient who had bullous pemphigoid, and when I first met him, he was in a wheelchair. He had very resistant bullous pemphigoid, and that's a condition that causes blisters all over your skin. So he had skin ulcerations, but he hadn't responded very well to treatment. So he had been on oral prednisone, which is a systemic steroid, and he had been on that for months to try to control his skin disease. The reason he was in the wheelchair was because he had myopathy, severe myopathy, to the point where he couldn't walk. He also had osteoporosis, and he was followed by the endocrine team for that. He also had developed hypertension and diabetes. And I was examining his skin, and I noticed he had a lot of bruising, and he described very easy bruising. In the case of a board exam, you might be on alert for other signs and symptoms as well. So beyond what my patient experienced, I feel like the classic textbook case would describe moon facies or that rounded facies. They might describe purple stria or a buffalo hump. Um, and that occurs due to fat redistribution. So a lot of these patients will have developed more of a central obesity pattern with thin arms and legs that fat redistribution that we see with cortisol. But um, I think that the boards are trying to get away from those classic terms. So I suspect you won't see the term moon facies or buffalo hump. Instead, you might hear about that easy bruising or the purple stria, possibly, or maybe something about their body habitus. Um, but those are all the signs and symptoms that are related to extra cortisol. So I wanna go back to our patient who is sitting in our exam room. What would be the best initial test for our 45-year-old author? Well, anytime you're trying to make the diagnosis of a patient with Cushing syndrome, you're trying to diagnose the etiology, that diagnostic process is based on three stages. Stage one is, first of all, is this true hypercortisolism? Stage two, is it ACTH dependent or independent? And stage three is when you actually make that anatomic or pathologic diagnosis. So stage one, is there true hypercortisolism? Um, in this case, what would be the best initial test? Well, in order to answer that question, let's go back to our patient. So. As you explain your reasoning process to her, she has several questions. Why would I have extra cortisol? Where is this extra cortisol coming from? What went wrong? Do I have cancer? And as you're thinking through the responses here, 
Well, the first thing is to recognize that, well, why do you have extra cortisol? It could be because of your brain, it could be because of your pituitary gland, or it could be because of your adrenal gland. And whenever I think about any situation with extra cortisol, I think back to the HPA access. So hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. So what went wrong? Well, the most common cause of hypercortisolism is that the pituitary gland is secreting ACTH. But there are other causes, and we're gonna go over that. But one point I wanna make here that, you know, your patient might say to you, well, if the most common problem is that I have a problem in my pituitary gland, why can't we just do a test where we do an MRI and look at the pituitary gland? Well, the reason you wouldn't choose that as an option is that about 10% of individuals have pituitary abnormalities on MRI, very surprisingly high number. So if you went straight to an MRI, that could give you a misdiagnosis, send you in the wrong way. So that's not the, that's not the correct response. So the best initial test is a 24-hour urine cortisol. So you wanna see if there's extra cortisol? Let's do a 24-hour urine cortisol and measure that. If that's not available, or if that's not an option on your test, then you can do a low-dose one milligram dexamethasone suppression test. As you're explaining this test to your patient, basically that patient at 11 p.m. at night is going to take a one milligram dose of dexamethasone. Dexamethasone is a type of steroid. And then she's gonna come back in at 8 a.m. and you're gonna draw her blood and you're gonna check cortisol levels. The, in general, this whole HPA access works beautifully with a feedback loop. And if you get a high dose of steroids, that should drop your production of ACTH and drop your endogenous production of cortisol. You've got that high dose of steroids, your body doesn't need to be making cortisol. So when you measure that 8 a.m. dose, if the system is working beautifully, that cortisol is not going to be elevated. Well, if you measure that 8 a.m. cortisol and it is elevated, that's what we call an abnormal test. Now, you could also have false positive, um, a false positive test because you could have other causes of increased cortisol. If the board question is, what are some false positive, what are some reasons you might get a false positive dexamethasone suppression test? Well, some other potential causes would be severe stress, depression, obesity, or alcoholism. All of those are conditions that could increase your cortisol levels. Now, the next step, or the next question here might be, what is your, if you have an abnormal dexamethasone suppression test, what would be your next best test? Well, now you're moving into stage two of your diagnostic process here. You've documented that you have higher levels of cortisol. The next question is, is this high cortisol due to ACTH? So the next best test is to test ACTH. If you have an elevation in your ACTH, well, that tells you right there, you need to either look for a pituitary tumor or you need to look for some other ectopic production source of ACTH. 
If your ACTH is not elevated, then you need to look at your adrenal glands. You need to find out why your adrenal glands are making cortisol. Stage three then gets down to more testing to narrow down the anatomic and pathologic diagnosis. So if you look at the causes of Cushing syndrome that are not due to exogenous causes, about 70% are going to be due to ACTH-dependent pituitary tumor. 70%, that's the majority. 12% in one study were due to ectopic ACTH-producing tumors. And examples of those kind of tumors might be other types of cancer or carcinoid tumors. The next cause, 10% were in one study due to functional adrenal adenomas, while 8% were due to functioning adrenal carcinomas. Another 1.5% were due to physiologic causes of increased cortisol that I already mentioned, severe stress, depression, obesity, alcoholism. So as you're working through this thought process, you're not gonna tell your patient all of this, but if you did, your patient might come back to you and, and, and say, so you're telling me that basically I could have a tumor in my pituitary gland or in my adrenal gland, or I could have a benign tumor on the adrenal glands or a cancerous tumor on my adrenal glands, or I could have a tumor or a cancer somewhere else. And the response would be yes, all of those are, <laughs> all of those are unfortunately possibilities here. And that's why we need to investigate quickly. The next question here might be um, treatment. And the best treatment is going to be surgical removal, followed by medications if your surgery is not entirely curative. And as you're explaining this to the patient, um, again, 70% of these are going to be due to an ACTH-producing pituitary tumor. In those cases, that patient would have to have surgery. And I want to point out as an aside how amazing our surgical advances have become because in order to remove a pituitary tumor, depending on the size of it, a lot of surgeons are going to be able to do um, what's known as transphenoidal surgery where they're going to pass instruments through the nose into the sphenoid sinus to then reach the pituitary gland, even though the pituitary gland is located um, at the base right below the brain. It's fascinating to me that you can perform transphenoidal surgery using a nasal approach going through the sphenoid si uh, sinus and then reach the pituitary gland. So, in the case that I presented with my 45-year-old author, in the TV show, this was what ultimately happened. She was diagnosed with a pituitary tumor and then was scheduled for the transphenoidal surgery. So in these cases, depending on the size of the tumor, in general, however, um, you're going to have a very good outcome just with surgery alone because these are benign tumors. This type is not going to be a cancerous tumor. And so surgery in many cases is going to be curative. So just to review, 
When you're talking to your patient and looking at the history and physical exam, you're looking for those signs and symptoms that are related to increased cortisol levels. So you might see um, systemic problems such as hypertension, diabetes, osteoporosis, myopathy. You might have some very specific physical exam findings such as moon facies, a buffalo hump, fat redistribution, central obesity, thin arms, thin legs, easy bruising, um, purple stria. Those are all things that might help lead you to the diagnosis. In terms of your best initial test, that would be a 24-hour urine cortisol level, or if that's not available, you could do a low dose, one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test. If following that test, you have an abnormal result, which essentially would be increased cortisol levels in your morning despite that dexamethasone suppression, well, the next best test would be to measure your ACTH, that adrenocorticotropin hormone. Um, and just as a reminder, it's the HPA axis. The hypothalamus is part of your brain. It sends a signal to the pituitary gland which then releases ACTH or adrenocorticotropic hormone. And that ACTH travels in your bloodstream to your adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys. And those adrenal glands are the ones that produce the cortisol. So if you measure your ACTH and you have elevated levels, then you need to think about where that ACTH is coming from. Is it coming from a pituitary tumor or is it coming from an ectopic source, such as another cancer or a carcinoid tumor? If on the other hand that ACTH is normal, then you need to think about why are the adrenal glands producing that cortisol? And one possibility is that they might have a functional adenoma or they might have a functional adrenal carcinoma. The main treatment is going to be surgical, depending on your anatomic and pathologic diagnosis, and you might have to add medications later if needed. So our patient in this um, situation had a good outcome, but a lot of it depends on you as the physician recognizing this constellation of signs and symptoms, which may be nonspecific. But in our case, 45-year-old patient, hypertension, confusion, osteoporosis with a fracture, and then some of those physical exam findings are what led us to that diagnosis of Cushing syndrome.